Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, Tied for Change. Today I'll be catching up with the world champion kiteboarder, Ewan Jaspin. Ewan has played an important role in the growth of the sport over the past decade with his influence as one of the world's leading kiteboarders. Tune in as we chat about how he got into kiteboarding after immigrating to Melbourne with his family from Scotland. And we talk about his mental and physical demands of a life on the road competing as a team of one and what a life connected to water means to him. Hey, Ewan. Uh, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm great. Um, how are you going? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. We're still in lockdown here in Sydney. Um, we're due for um, being released, <laughs> I think it's imminently, or next month, I think it is. So, Freedom Day. But what about you? You're, you're in... Yeah, you're in America. You've been flying all over the world. God, you're lucky. You got a great, a great. If you call it a job, you've got a great job. Yeah, it's been a it's been a very busy year, but uh, also pretty lucky to be to have got out of Australia. I left in beginning of February, I think like the fifth of February or something. And mm-hmm. yeah, I've been pretty much around the world since then. Um, once I got out, it was it's been fairly not easy definitely not routine travel to get around it's been mm-hmm. pretty stressful actually at times trying to plan around restrictions and everything but after missing last year uh being stuck in australia the entire year i kind of yeah had to had to make it out this year and it's it's been good i'm great i've been um yeah busy which is is yeah it's great having a little rest and recuperation week at the moment after the a long summer in oregon yeah but uh, yeah, looking forward to the rest of the year and just not really sure when I'm going to be able to get home is the only kind of little stressor at the moment. Yeah, well, but it must be enjoyable being doing what you're doing, that's for sure. We've known each other for um, 18 years now and, and um, since you guys moved to Australia in 2004 to Melbourne, same time we moved as a family as well from London uh, to Melbourne. I'm good mates with your dad, uh, Andrew Jaspin, and he was a former editor of The Age. Uh, brilliant guy and we catch up on a regular basis but um it's it's really cool to see how you've kind of gone from strength to strength um from a young kid i guess you said like were you about 11 11 when you came to melbourne yeah yeah just before i turned 11 yeah, i guess amazing and, it, and it's incredible because i interviewed you in my book design your life which was published in 2014 we interviewed you know, we had a chat in 2013 so it wasn't that long but that you'd um you know, you've moved moved from 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 England, or from Edinburgh, yeah, Edinburgh, 
Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Um, yeah. Were, were, you, were you in London? Where Edinburgh? Yeah. Yeah. We were, so I was born in it. I was born in Edinburgh, and then we lived in London for a few years, and then lived in Glasgow before we moved to Australia. Just talk about because you were like nineteen when we had a chat mm-hmm. uh, in two thousand thirteen, which is which is not that long ago, uh, and you know now you're. You've been six-time Australian champion, world champion, and currently third in the world rankings. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's and you've been doing this like, I guess you get, you found your thing and you just like excelled majorly at it. How did it happen? Um, well, I guess it all kind of kicked off when I was younger before we moved to Australia. Just um, family holidays to the beach in Cornwall, stuff like that. I was flying kind of always interested in flying little stunt kites and training kites and whatever that just stuff on the beach um with my mum dad and brother and Mm -hmm. then when we moved to australia i guess i was a little a little sad about moving to australia at first i missed all my friends in scotland and it was obviously a big change and after a couple of years i think my parents kind of wanted to help me get into something that i was gonna really enjoy and I, uh, we moved near the beach in St Kilda, and just seeing all the kite surfers there—it's a really busy spot. It's my, still my home spot to this day. Yeah, I wanted to give mm. it a go, and I think when I was 12, I tried to give it a go, but they said I was a bit too small and light at the time. Get blown away, <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. waited a year and got back into it, and yeah, just all the way through school, it was kind of what I was most into. I stopped doing most of my other sports which were like tennis and football or soccer around 15 and kind of focused on kiting and then yeah finished school 17 and instead of going to schoolies or leavers week or I I think you you call it schoolies in Sydney as well I'm not sure not sure but um yeah I went to my first world tour stop in New Caledonia um kind of had been planning on doing that and from there that was end of 2011. I've just been, um, yeah, full-time at it. Isn't that incredible? Like, you, you guys were living in, uh, I think you were living in Albert Park, weren't you, on, on the bay there? Yeah. Which is literally like a five-minute walk to the to the beach where it, all, it was all happening. How? I mean, that's obviously a major played a major part, the fact that you were living right there. It must have been such incredible proximity to see that happening on a daily basis. Yeah. Is that what inspired you to seeing these guys all out there doing it? Yeah, I remember, I think... We went down to St Kilda Beach on Christmas uh, one day, and Christmas is just seems to be windy every year in Melbourne, and nice weather. Mm-hmm. And we went down, and I saw a bunch of the people out, and I think I got for Christmas like a a training kite, which is it's like quite a powerful kite, but it's one that you just use on the beach just to learn the kite mm-hmm. flying skills before getting into kite surfing, and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I used it for a year, and then I think next Christmas my parents got me a kite, like a proper kite surfing kite, and just seeing all the guys down there, it's such a it's such a perfect spot for learning St Kilda. And then I think when I was about fifteen, we actually moved into one of the apartment blocks, literally on St Kilda Beach, like on the beach road, and wow. my bedroom was kind of overlooking the beach as well, and probably didn't help my school work too much with my 
my desk was overlooking <laughs> the windy beach. Every afternoon, I'd be <laughs> trying to sit down doing my homework and just see the beach and kind of sneak out. And then my mom or dad would have to run over the road and come drag me home for dinner. And yeah, that's oh kind God. of when I got fully obsessed with it, I guess, was when we moved across the street. Was it like relatively new sport at that point? Mm. Yeah, so that, kind of, kind of fairly I, new. I don't yeah, know. I think 2006 I got my training kite. In 2007 I got my first like proper kite to go in the water. And yeah, the sport kind of only started not even 10 years before that. It was the first kind of versions of it were mid-90s. And then the first kind of production kites from, from real brands came out in about 98, 99. So, yeah, it was only it was only like seven or eight years old the sport when I got into it, and that's kind of why when I I tried to learn when I was twelve and they told me I was too light, and that's just because the gear wasn't very advanced at that point. It was still quite a dangerous sport, and kind of when I, yeah two thousand six seven there was a lot of safety advancements in the sport, and that's when it became not just like a pure extreme sport, and it became a little bit more accessible to general public really well it's interesting they still say can people start younger now yeah i mean there's for younger kids yeah there's a lot of kids starting like eight nine ten years old i mean you can be younger um but it's more it is still a dangerous sport if you as long as you know what you're doing it it's relatively safe but you need to know there's like safety systems that you need to know how they work and you need to know how to rig your gear up properly and if you're any younger than 10 years old, it's, yeah, you can't really be uh, fully trusted to know exactly what you're doing and make rational decisions and all that. So I'd say about nine or 10 is probably as young as you'd want someone to start and you definitely want them to be supervised and all that. But um, there's some amazing kids in, around the world around 10 years old who are killing it now, which is definitely, that definitely wasn't happening really? when I started. No, no. I guess you've been inspiring them too. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I went to go the other day and they said I was too heavy, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, we, we make some Can pretty big too kites, we'll, too we'll get you going. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do it. I don't want my arms being ripped off, though. I can imagine that. Be, it's very physical. I mean, well, it looks incredibly it's, physical. It's kind of got to the point where the gear has been designed to... So you wear a harness while you're going along. Mm-hmm. And you hook the kite mm. into your harness, so it's kind of like it's kind of a similar feeling to like if you've ever been rock climbing, and you know when you let go and you kind of lay or whatever it's called back down. It's kind of like that. You can kind of just sit into it and let let the harness do all the work, yeah. and then just steer it with your arms. So you can it's good exercise, and you kind of take it as mm. hard as you want to take it. You can cruise around, and it'd be real easy, or you can obviously. You can a lot of the tricks we do we unhook from the harness and then that's when it gets quite physical. You got it all on your arms. Wow. So tell me what it, what is it what would it feel like the first time you tried it like that just flying up in the air like that? Is it incredible? well? It must your be first time feeling. you'd probably have a pretty bad time to be honest. <laughs> most <laughs> most people uh, takes probably five or ten hours to kind of learn to to be safe and go along on the board and keep your ground and not get blown downwind and have to walk back. And then, yeah, from there, it's just learning your jumps. Mm -hmm. And obviously people progress at different stages, but 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people get into it because they just see the massive jumps you can do and the airtime you can get, and it's it's really is like flying, kind of, um, just at your local beach. It's pretty pretty accessible way to get get yourself up twenty to I don't know. Some people are going hundred feet in the air now. So amazing. What was it that um, like helped you to kind of you know the the speed of your learning of how to do this and the how you rose to the tops relatively quickly, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what was it about you that, that enabled you to do that? Did you have uh, great instructors or did you just have it in you to, to make it happen? I don't it know. It's a, I couldn't really tell you, to be honest. I wasn't really like... I'd never really done any board sports before kiteboarding. Um, I'd tried snowboarding a mm-hmm. few times and I'd always been into tennis and soccer, which I was, I was all right at. I was kind of... Well, I was pretty decent at, but I wasn't like obviously professional level in those sports. Yeah, I just... Got, I guess I just got really obsessed with it. That was the main thing. Just um, thinking about it all the time, analysing it and progressing up the ranks in Australia and just always wanting to, just being really motivated to learn. I don't think I'm the most... I mean, there's definitely now competing with all the riders. There's definitely riders who are more naturally kind of talented, I think. Um, but maybe they don't analyse things the same way or... I definitely spend a lot of time thinking about all the moves and the tricks and the way things work and I'm pretty interested in the gear and the way it all yeah, is designed, which I'm getting a lot more into these days with Nash, who are my sponsor. That's cool. But yeah, I think my main progression came after I had two years of being injured when I was... Actually, I think when I talked to you, when I had that interview in your book, I was. Mm. I think I just had a shoulder reconstruction. And then, That's right, you did. Um, just after that, I, so that took me out for about a year, and then four weeks after that, coming back after a year, I broke my ankle, which is another year, a couple of surgeries. And just those two years, I basically, I did some study, I did a diploma in marketing, and did some, uh, I don't know, normal life things, I guess you could say, and wasn't <laughs> yeah. really happy with it. And just spent that whole two years mm-hmm. just dreaming about getting back to it, wanting to get back on the tour and just be out on the water and just thinking about all the tricks. And then when I, after two years off, it took me about a month to get back to my old level. And then after that, I just... Wow, um, that's quick. Yeah, it was pretty quick. I think because I'd just been visualizing everything for so long. Um, yeah. And then after that, I just had this crazy progression for like a, a year or two after or, yeah, even longer but the first year or two after that I all of a sudden learned all these tricks that all the top guys were doing because before that I was always doing the world tour and just I was getting like 9th, 13th, 17th kind of results just being stoked that mm-hmm. I was able to do it and be in the top 20 Yeah, and kind of just be able to travel, but I never, I never even had goals of being like a world champion or winning events or doing any of that. And then when I came back, I just all of a sudden started learning all the tricks that the top guys were doing, even doing some tricks that they weren't doing. And that's when I started think, kind of believing. I think I got fifth in a big competition about a year after, and then I started believing as I actually could maybe win some of this stuff. So, yeah, I think once I got that realization that i could do it when i was about 22 i think it all kind of took off then 
And yeah, it was just weird how after two years of being injured, it, I think it did the best thing for my career ever, really. I almost almost thought about kind of stopping. I wasn't really getting sponsorship. I was trying to figure out if I had to go to university and wasn't making any money at it. And it almost, I think I pretty much almost gave it up doing it seriously and then gave it one last shot. And lucky I did. Isn't that amazing how you could have just given it up and you would never have experienced what you've experienced today? You're a very chilled guy. It's kind of, are you deep, is are you something deep inside of you very ambitious to win? Yeah, I think I'm mm-hmm. a pretty competitive person in general. I get that quite a lot, actually. I didn't, I don't think I used to be so competitive. I don't know, and I don't feel <laughs> like I'm, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, I never really thought of myself as competitive, but over the years, people have told me, like, that I am, and a lot of things even outside of kiteboarding, just basically whatever I'm doing, I kind of want to want to do well or, or, or win. Um, and I guess that's kind of, um, yeah, transferred well into my kiting and motivated me a lot and always made me see no matter, there's a lot of disciplines within the sport and whenever I do them, I want to be good at them and see what the best guys are doing and make sure I'm up there with them. And yeah, I think that's just being well-rounded within the sport as well has kind of helped. I guess I could explain a little bit about what I mean there. It's, there's kite surfing started as just um, basically riding a small board that's uh, called a twin tip. It goes both ways. It has It's symmetrical on either end. And since then, it's kind of grown into, because it's so it's such a diverse thing, you can use the kite, and there's so many places you, you can use it. You can ride it on the snow, you can ride it on a hydrofoil in the surf, you can jump really high, you can do crazy tricks, you can hit rails, hit ramps, um, mm-hmm. the list goes on. So I've kind of, yeah, got into all those disciplines, and I think that's helped me be a well-rounded rider and kind of be... Yeah, controlled and yeah, my style's definitely more um, analytical and more controlled and not taking crazy crashes all the time, going for stuff when I feel it, which has helped kind of prolong my career as well. Because when I had those two years of injuries, I did kind of think like, oh, how long can this last? I'm already pretty busted up. When I was 21, I'd had quite a few yeah. surgeries, and then since then, I've been a few niggles here and there. But yeah, definitely had a fairly long career compared to what most people have in the sport i guess well i guess you're you're an a, you're an athlete it's not just a you know riding <laughs> it's a weird one when i it call, my, like a, when I call myself an athlete yeah <laughs> so but yeah. What, what do you do outside how do you train for it do you like eat certain food do you train like what do you do to kind of be on top form well it's a funny one because board sports in general are, are very different to um to say like a standard olympic type sport where it's all about training and being strong and say running where it's just it's all about how you treat your body and kiteboarding is definitely like an expression type sport where same with a lot of board sports where it's creativity and control and knowledge that kind of gets you to where you are so i i I mean i i keep fit i um i do a bit of yoga stretching i do when I'm at home, I go to the gym most a uh, few days a week, and then while I'm traveling, it's hard. Yeah. But just try and take care of myself, and honestly, just riding a lot is how I keep fit. Um, I've mm. spent I spend 
few hours a day on the water, which I have almost every day this year, which has been a big year. But, um, yeah, there's no exact, like, training schedule or anything for me. But, um, okay. Yeah. And have you, got a, have you got a support team with you, at, you know, when you're traveling? No. It's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a – it's a tough wow. sport. I do wish sometimes – that we had a bit more of that because it's it's a it's it's a shame when you watch all the football players they've got their their massage team their nutrition team their physio team their coach their all that stuff it's hard to do such a it is a really physically demanding sport kite surfing at the top kind of um, levels as I said yeah. I think before you can take it easy but at the top of the sport it's really physically demanding sport there's heavy landings hard crashes. You need to be strong, and it is hard to do it all by yourself. I'm, I've kind of become a bit of an encyclopedia of injuries and, and the body and just going through all that stuff and having to do a lot of the research myself and reading up and on nutrition and how to rehab certain injuries and take care of myself and learn certain stretching routines and strength routines. So I kind of just do all that stuff myself and, yeah, not really a support team so much. My sponsor nash helps me out a bit with advice and planning things and all that but it's pretty much all just um mm-hmm. do it myself so is it is it still early days in that regard in terms of the kind of the audience following or advertising i, I heard it was um was it in the olympics this year or not it's um it was going to be in the olympics this year but with the whole covid thing it was supposed to be well it's supposed to be a um a test sport like a show show sport because it's confirmed in paris as an olympic sport mm-hmm. but then i think with yeah it just being really hard to logistically plan this olympics as it was they got rid of it and waited till paris but that's actually the racing side of the sport which is not really where i'm focusing that's that's it's pretty much sailing the racing side of the, of the sport mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and I kind of looked at getting into it a bit at the start, but it would have meant giving up the rest of the disciplines that I do and going full proper Olympic training into that. And I decided against it. It's just it wasn't really what I wanted to do. It would have been would have been cool. Would have been great to do it, but um, it just um, yeah, it wasn't really wasn't really up my alley, I guess. Yeah. So what kind of audience has it got? I mean, it is getting a little more mainstream. There's a lot of brands use it for advertising now. You see a lot of car brands use it as like this kind of amazing outdoor sport. And, you know, you can load all your gear into their car and take it to the beach and, yeah, thrash the car around on the beach. They kind of like showing that all the time. And <laughs> and then a lot of kind of health health foods and outdoorsy brands. It's It's just a great kind of visual spectacle to use for marketing and all that. But I wouldn't say many mm. people outside of the sport strictly follow the sport and watch it and really know what's going on. I mean, it is growing. There's a few million people worldwide who kiteboard now. So the audience mm-hmm. is there within the sport, but it's still not quite still not quite mainstream where you're going to see it on Channel 10 News or stuff like that nightly. I think it's crazy. It's such an incredible visual, physical... I mean, it's just an incredible thing to watch. Um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that. I guess it's just a matter of time before people realize that, wow, this has got massive potential yeah. uh, to have a much bigger audience than what it's currently got. 
Um, so I guess that's just around the corner, I would, I would think. Yeah, and it's, it's getting there the... with um, the just the sport becoming more accessible and gear becoming cheaper and easier to find, and the second-hand gear market is huge now. So people can get into it. I think the one thing that's stopping it becoming really big is the fact that you you really need lessons to do it, which are quite expensive. You can't. It's too. It is safe if you know what you're doing, but it can be quite mm-hmm. dangerous if you do just go down to the beach, buy a kite, and try and figure it out yourself. It can go quite wrong. Um, so I yeah. think that's the thing that's stopping it really blowing up because it's not one of those sports that you can. I don't know, like surfing, you can grab a board, kind of go in the water if you know how to swim and figure it out, or. Or tennis, you can just pick up a tennis racket and give it a go, and you're not gonna, you know, end up in hospital. But um, that's, I think, that's the one barrier that is yeah. stopping it from becoming this mainstream sport at the moment. I remember when I was younger, I was like when living in London, and I went to south of France with my girlfriend at the time, and I remember trying windsurfing for the first time, just <laughs> yeah. in uh, Port Grimont near Saint Tropez. And a uh, little campsite they were staying on there. And I just got on this board. You hired the board. And I was great at going out. I just couldn't work out how to come back. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> common thing going. as well. I kept going. Yeah. And I lied down trying to paddle back. And, of course, <laughs> the this, this sails in the water, you know, going nowhere fast. It took, took hours before I was rescued. Yeah. Um, but that, that kind of thing just puts me off. So, I mean, I, I'm not good at kind of persevering with that kind of thing. <laughs> Obviously, you, you did. What is about the about the earth you don't like? <laughs> you're like you're earth? constantly <laughs> up in the air, aren't you? I thought that was going to be a little, or a little bit of a deeper question about like <laughs> world uh, politics and. <laughs> <laughs> but you you got this. You just majority of your time you're above ground. You're like you're over. Like you know you're up in the yeah, air. Yeah, getting up there. I mean, really it is cool. definitely a great adrenaline rush and um, just always learning. There's always that little bit of risk involved and. You need to be super focused still when you're up there and obviously come down and land softly. Yeah, mm. I think that is what kind of drew me to it at first was the airtime for sure. Does it have the same buzz still every time you go up in the air? Do you still have that adrenaline rush? Um, I kind of look for obviously my my expectations are now higher. Um, I've done so. I've, I mean, I've done so many tricks so many times that basic things definitely don't do it for me anymore but that is why I've been exploring more of the disciplines within the sport and kind of the gear as well as has improved over the years as well whereas you where you can go higher than before and you can land softer and it's safer and you can kind of still there's still things that I want to do and still things that I want to push and I, I am still pretty motivated to go out almost every day I'm still excited to go out there so yeah, there's days there's days where I'm not super hyped, and if the conditions are pretty average, if the wind's light or gusty or doesn't look nice, then I might choose a different discipline or do something else. But majority of the time, I'm still mm-hmm. quite motivated to um, yeah to get out there. Amazing. And you build a career doing what you love. I mean, how does that feel? Yeah, it's great. I mean, I've never really known anything else, to be honest, so... I don't have much to compare it to, um, other than those two years when I was injured, which I was definitely not happy. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm doing what I want to do, and I want to keep doing it, which I think is pretty important. I think that means that I'm definitely enjoying it. If I want to, if there's nothing else I really want to do more than this. So, I'm pretty, yeah, pretty happy with where things are at the moment. 
Amazing. What What do you think you would have done if you hadn't uh, have done this? Did your dad yeah. try to push you to become a journalist <laughs> as well? Yeah. I mean, Calm's kind of getting there, my brother, um, doing a yeah. bit, bit of journalism. Um, I was actually interested a bit in that um, at school. Um, I, mm -hmm. I was all right at writing and obviously it's semi, it's uh, in the blood, I guess. But um, I, I honestly don't know what else I would have done. I as I said, when I was injured, I did a little bit of marketing at university, and I mean, it was all right. It yeah. wasn't, um, I wasn't super drawn to that or anything. It was more just something to do while I was not able to kiteboard. And yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything else specifically that I would have liked to do. I mean, I always, everyone's got their dreams and things that they, if I wasn't a kite surfer, I'd, I mean, I'm pretty into driving cars and racing I would like to have done that but that's something that you really need to be into from a young age and have a lot of money put into it and it's not exactly an achievable yeah. one so yeah I can't really answer that to be honest it's it's kind of my only only thing that I can think of <laughs> yeah that's cool but obviously you, you've you've focused on this 100% or more than 100% like absolutely obsessed by it and no, no wonder you've created the success that you have with that What's what's the kind of the breadth of the people you know the competitors in the in the in, the, um, in this uh, in the competitions that you're doing? What's the kind of age bracket are they? I mean, there are people, you know, is it, is it, is it young person sport or is there a, a broad kind of uh, range of ages? Um, in competitive side of it, it's pretty much like any sport. It's um, from, I mean, you have the kids like the young kids who child prodigies from 15 years old who. Are amazing, but the majority of people are between 18, 19, and early 30s, kind of like any professional sport. There seems to be, at the moment, in the freestyle discipline, which is where you um, load up off the water on your, on the twin tip board and do tricks and land really hard. Um, that's kind of going towards more and more amplitude and harder landings and spinning faster and the age of the competitors has actually got a lot younger right now. I think, I think the last full world tour they ran in 2019. Obviously, last year there was none. But the average age of the com the top three was like they were like 16, 18, and 19 or something. The top three, just because the way they're riding now on that in that certain discipline is so demanding on your body that a lot of the time, by the time they're 21, they've their knees are ruined and they kind of have to give up and that's kind of sad to see that that's the way that they're pushing it they're not looking so much at the style and execution and the control and more just pushing it towards go as big as you can spin as much as you can and land as hard as you can for the technical difficulty but it's not really conducive to a, a long-term career at the moment so there's a few of us kind of I guess older guys I'm not super old in the scene yet but <laughs> i guess us older guys trying to push towards looking at the riding being a bit more sustainable and looking more towards control and style and doing things nice instead of just going as big as possible and exploding on landings because there's a lot of young riders in the last years that have kind of just had to drop out the sports they've gone too hard from 15 to 20 years old and wow so that's not great to see, but um, I think it is changing a little bit. Oh. Um, but yeah, I did the. So I, I've I've done a few different world tours in the different disciplines, but the one that we were talking about earlier, 
well, you mentioned I'm third in the world at the moment. Is um, that is that that tour where everyone's kind of going big and landing hard? And it was funny. I was I'm 27 now, and I was I think the second oldest competitor, in, which is just so weird for me because I've always been like <laughs> one of the young guys. The youngest. I mean, obviously, there's a point where you're not the youngest anymore, but I all of a sudden went from being a young guy to like the second oldest with nothing in between. They just um, older kind of older guys dropped off, and then yeah, the the guy I got third. The guy who came second was fifteen, which was crazy. So Jesus, yeah. And I mean, do you think is this something you, you could do? Because you're you're approaching this in a much more sustainable way. Uh, I guess you're more cautious since you were hurt that time yeah. for that two year period you were off. Um, do you see yourself doing it for a long time going forward? Um, I mean, at the moment, I'm trying to diversify my career a bit more and getting more involved with the brand Nash who I ride for I'm spending yeah. a bit of time there yeah. um, helping design gear kind of helping with whatever I can in the brand um, and I think eventually I would like to work in the brand and kind of rep, rep the brand a bit more and I mean my passion I think going forward is gear development and um, testing gear and mm. trading gear so um, I guess I'll make a steady kind of exit out of the writings, professional writing side and into that. But I, I want to, I mean, there's a few, You're not done yet. I'm not done yet. And there's a few guys who I know who I've been competing with, um, a, fr a good friend of mine, Brandon Scheid, he's a bit of a kind of superhuman athlete, but he's 35 now and he's pushing as hard as ever still. And that's kind of motivating me to see that it's possible and you can continue into your 30s and still be pushing the sport. But um, he's the same. He's kind of transferred into yeah, working amazing. with brands now. But, um, yeah, I see myself at least for the next couple of years still um, still riding professionally and trying to push the, my limits. And kind of comes a time now mm -hmm. when I'm, I am thinking that, that maybe there's only a few years left of doing it at this level. And it, that, again, motivates me to push myself and be like well if I've only got three or four years let's see what I can do in these last years um not that they will be the last mm. years but that's definitely a thing where you feel like maybe talking to Brandon about that he felt like maybe his career's coming to an end he's got nothing to lose he may as well go hard and his best years of riding were in his early 30s which was pretty impressive so that's fantastic do you, do you, I imagine you'd be an incredible teacher as well. Do you coach anybody? Um, no, I do a little bit of coaching. I used to a bit more. Um, now I just, um, I did it kind of more when I needed a bit of money. And um, I have mm -hmm. some, I do instructional videos online a little bit on my YouTube channel and um, people seem to really like them. And I, I do enjoy giving tips and stuff, but it's not really... Coaching is actually becoming a lot more popular in the sport and people yeah. know that a lot of riders, because it is such a young sport, before there weren't that many pro riders who had retired and gone into yeah. like a coaching position. Now there's quite a lot of riders yeah. who are getting older and turning into coaches and doing that kind of stuff. So that could also be something I yeah. look at in the future. Um, I do feel yeah. like I'm quite analytical and technical about the riding, which does make a good good kind of coaching position as well so yeah at the moment i yeah. don't do a whole lot of it other than the the online youtube stuff
And you, you know, you said before that there's not a huge team around you to supporting you. How how do you manage that? That self. How do you stay motivated? And how do you kind of manage the kind of the mental resilience? Uh, I mean, of doing this day in day out, flying around the world, competition after competition. I mean that it it looks incredibly romantic. It looks incredibly exciting. But there must be, it must be pretty tough as well. Yeah, I mean that's definitely something that I guess you don't talk about a lot because. To, to the outside, everyone just thinks you're living the dream on holiday. You're a superhero, yeah. On holiday, twenty four seven, three hundred and sixty five days a week. It's a permanent life holiday. But there are definitely harder times, especially when you're going through injuries and you're stressing about getting back in time, or if you're gonna heal up, or yeah, tra- traveling nonstop gets pretty tiring. I mean, I'm living out of my suitcase. I mean, this year it's been obviously a bit of a different year, but I haven't been home in, um, I don't know, a month, it's September. I haven't been home since February. And I've been mm-hmm. from Melbourne to, I was here in February, and then I was in Hawaii, and then North Carolina, and then Portugal, Greece, Spain, Caribbean, and then back here. And it definitely takes it out of you. It's pretty tiring um, trying to live like that all the time. And yeah, yeah just dealing Jet with Jet lag it. and all yeah. that. Dealing with it all the time and kind of, you, I've just got to pace myself a bit and yeah, sleep well, eat well. And yeah, I don't know. It's um, yeah, I've been doing it for 10 years now and I've kind of just got good at it, managing it and being able to keep at yeah. it and stay motivated and keep it all organized and yeah i guess um it would be nice if there was a bit of a team around me though it's i mean just in other sports you see you see the support crew they have around them and it it would definitely help where this our sports just at such a funny size and level where we're expected to perform like top athletes with not much funding or support so i think that's also why a lot of careers are cut short because it's it's hard to um yeah keep that up for 15 years or so with just doing it by yourself yeah and does the how does it work in terms of the world circuit is it just you know 12 12 months of the year or is it is it seasonal well this year it's pretty it depends on the discipline we we usually had up until 2019, where I was doing it, um, I'd been doing the, the Kite Park League World Circuit for five years. That was usually five stops a year, um, and they were mm-hmm. pretty much, there was one in February, and then three through the American summer, and then one somewhere else at the end of the year. And this year, due, I guess still due to the COVID stuff, restrictions, travel restrictions, sponsorship money and all that mm-hmm. it's just been a few stops this year there's the one in spain there's a couple in europe and then there's one in brazil which i'm going to at the start of november um so it's a pretty easy year this year but because of that and because there's not as much competition your sponsors expect you to be going to doing other things trade shows uh gear demos visiting mm-hmm. the retailers and the shops and kind of um Mm-hmm. Yeah, just representing the brand all around the world, filming videos and 
mm. being in the magazines and yeah. which you all have to do. We have to do ourselves. I have to make all my own media, write all my own magazine articles Amazing. and all that stuff. So there's yeah a lot to it. But this year's doing... less of a competitive year than usual. Is the is the prize money increased over the time you've been doing it? Um, no. Not really. That was a big thing in the sport, actually. When I first got into it, was the riders were kind of wanting more prize money, and there was a few years uh, where the, where it went really bad. The riders, um, while, while I was in, while I was injured, actually, this all happened. The riders tried to take over the tour and thought they could run it themselves and make mm. it better, and it actually turned out a lot worse. Oh. And <laughs> <laughs> since then, it's been kind of recovering but with the more disciplines and the more world tours there are for different disciplines now it's kind of spread itself a little thin because before that there was one world tour for it was basically just the freestyle world tour which is what i started doing and now there's so many well not a lot but there's three or four different tours now so it's kind of spread itself a bit thin and yeah the money's kind of prize money helps i mean it's um but I try and plan my year and budgeting and all that without prize money. And any prize yeah. money I get is bonus kind of and save that. And yeah, so it's not, I mean, it's never yeah, going to be cool. a sport that um, gets you rich like a tennis player or a Formula One driver or something or a footballer. Yeah. But you can make a living and, and save a bit of money and then hopefully buy a house at some point and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Is it a sport that you can, like, are you incredible kind of uh, a snowboarder? Is it something it, that, like, what you know how to do? Yeah. I mean, it's very different from other sports, but at the same time, if you're good at any board sports and kind of articulating the board with your feet, it definitely translates over. Like, I, I can pick up most sports and board sports anyway and be better than someone who's never done it before obviously but that also translates into kite surfing if you've got a if you've got a really good snowboarder they can come yeah. along and be and learn a lot quicker so it definitely helps i've kind of i actually never surfed really in my life um until the last year and i definitely mm. kind of picked that up quite quickly yeah. the, the hard bit for me was um the paddling which is basically swimming and reading the waves and stuff yeah. but the the board once I'm on the wave it feels very similar to kite surfing and I can I can kind of perform above my level on the wave and then I kind of look like a drowned dog trying to paddle out the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. We're gonna try to get David Trurn on here, who is uh, who invented the foil boards. Yeah, uh, he's the based in Byron. Yeah. Um, yeah, those look really really cool. I think I could even do that. Yeah, I actually had a go on one of his. <laughs> Maybe not. Boards while I was in Byron Bay last year, which was pretty cool. Oh, really? Yeah. What was it like? It was great. It was, um, I started on the beginner board, which, um, it is really easy. It's like compared to hydrofoiling on the, um, on the kite or something, which takes quite a long time to learn. They've really designed that well to, you can kind of just stand there, pull the trigger and just start floating. It's, um, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, Again, I've done a lot of hydrofoiling on other boards before, so that helped. But um, mm -hmm. I think it is something that they're definitely pushing to kind of someone who's never done that stuff before and is able to do. So, yeah, you should definitely give yeah, that a yeah. go. It's, it's super good fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. I will. I want to try. I live in Pittwater up on the northern beaches. I think I'd try it. Yeah. There. Um. How how have you? How do you think you've changed as a person since I interviewed you like seven years ago? Um. Because you sound like a different person altogether. To be honest. <laughs> I mean, you were in a bad way at that time because yeah. you were an injury. Yeah, I was definitely but, I mean, a little sad you, you, at you that point. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I, I yeah. guess, I don't know really. I've done so much traveling. I've met so many people and visited so many places now. And I don't feel like I'm super different. My, um, I don't know, my values and personality and... I don't think all that has changed too much, just become a lot more experienced, kind of think more about things. Yeah, I don't, yeah, hard to say. I don't, I don't feel like a super different person, to be honest. Um, I mean, just obviously what you've, you've seen so much of the world, like way more than most people would see. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you, you're on a, on route to something, you're on, it's, it's a job, so you're on route to an event. Um, but I guess like, what have you, what have, what's your favorite place on earth? What's your favorite ocean? Got a few. Where I am right now in Hood River in Oregon, um, I've spent, other than last year, I've spent the last like six summers here, um, kind of two or three months through the summer, and I just really like this place. It's um, I haven't really experienced it too much in winter, so that could be a different different story. But uh, I really like the people yeah. and the the environment, and yeah, there's the mountain, uh, amazing mountain here, Mount Hood which has got good snowboarding. There's a lot. It's a really active outdoors place. Um, so this yeah. is somewhere where I, f- I think I could live. But um, really, I still I still yeah. love Melbourne. Um, whenever I think about living somewhere else, basing permanently, I always kind of want to always come back to Melbourne. I know the last year and a half, it's not somewhere you really want to live, um, unfortunately. But... Long term, I do. Melbourne's still pretty much my favorite place in the world. Wow, that's a big call. I mean, Melbourne's always like top, top ten, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, number, number liv- one, livable cities. And, but I mean, it's got everything I want. Yeah, I've got a lot. I'm not of, sure it is right now. Yeah, I, I think it definitely lost that title this year. But um, yeah, it's got everything I want there. It's got amazing kite surfing. It's got great weather. It's got um. So many things going on all the time. There's good surf down the coast. Um, just great quality of life in, in general. Mm-hmm. Hopefully returning to that soon. And other than mm-hmm. other than uh, crazy living prices compared to a lot of places that I visit, um, it's kind of somewhere yeah. where yeah, it's one of pretty much the only place I can see myself living long term. I mean, I've yeah visited some amazing places. Otherwise, I spend a lot of time in Hawaii, which is a Pretty amazing place, and yeah. um, been to a lot of tropical islands and stuff. But um, yeah, to spend long term time, I think Melbourne. I mean, traveling a lot all the time as well. I do kind of feel everyone. Everyone thinks like, I wish you could be doing that the whole time. But sometimes I also have. I wish I could be at home all the time and not traveling all the time. Yeah, which definitely gets a bit yeah. tough sometimes. Like this last week, I've just. Um, after being on the road for seven months and then finishing, we just had this big expo and been filming a lot and riding. And I've just, the last few days, just been feeling super burnt out, actually. And also thinking it would mm. be nice to just be at home in one spot, have my own 
house or bedroom or whatever for a little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm pretty lucky to be doing what I am, especially this year. Uh, I don't think I'd have it. I, I, yeah. you, you obviously can, I can make that choice. And if I did have a choice, I would be doing what I'm doing. So there's just moments where you, you do yeah. think it would be nice to have that normal, consistent life. But when it comes down to it, I wouldn't choose any other way, I guess. Amazing. How do you, how do you make it work with relationships? I guess there's a lot of people in the uh, in the circuit. There must be a lot of people you know who you bump into at the competitions. Is that right? Yeah. Um, like is is it is the top five kind of mates? Are yeah. Friends? No, like we all get on in the world? really well. It's not competitive enough to kind of lose friendships over. Or, I mean, there was a few years on the tour mm. where. A few of us at the top, those three of us who, for the last three or four years, were kind of battling for that world title, and during competitions, it would it would get a little tense at times, and I don't know, have some arguments, and writers' meetings, and judging meetings, and kind of competition like uh, yeah. things. We'd get a little a little heated sometimes, but I mean, there's no one really on the tour. Or, any of the people I compete with who I'm not friendly with. so, And then, obviously, as well, some of my best friends are... I've obviously have some of my best friends in Melbourne, but then I have some of my best friends are people from France or from United States or from Canada or from, yeah, Belgium, wherever, all around the world. So that's kind of cool as well. Mm. They're all very different and have very different upbringings and ways of life which is kind of cool to have friends from all different places yeah share, sharing similar stories yeah what about um uh let's think thinking in terms of like people in other industries you know design or whatever it might be you know uh, or or someone who's like going through life early stages of life you know like you were when you're 11 or when you're 19 um you know trying to find the thing that really excites you you know, I know it sounds like you found it relatively quickly, right? Yeah. Or something just connected with you early on. But what if, you, what advice would you give to people who are who haven't found that yet? Well, I mean, yeah, no, in in the kite surfing world, it is very, it is a sport that people get into, and it becomes like a lifestyle and kind of an addiction to a lot of people, and a lot of people within the sport take it up and become completely obsessed by it, and basically figure out a way to have their life completely revolve around kite surfing. And it's crazy, like, in a, in a place like here, in Hood River, there's people from all over America here right now living in their vans or living mm -hmm. wherever they can just to make this work, make their kind of kite surfing... People who aren't professional mm -hmm. kite surfers, they're, they work in tech or in design or in any kind of realms of life and it kind yeah. of shows you that it is possible to if you really set to it you can really figure out your life to work around what you want to do it just kind of takes that there's definitely sacrifices and people have hesitations to do it and move away from home or quit their job or work remotely or, and I think that's actually one thing that has come out of COVID it seems that remote working has enabled a lot of people to kind of go and do what they want to do or move to where they want to live or mm. take up sports that they never yeah. thought they would before. So that's 
definitely one positive that's come out of this whole situation. But um, as you say, for me, it came quite easily and quite early. And But there's, I mean, kite surfers of all ages. I mean, we have people people here. We were competing in this event, Kiteboarding for Cancer, the other day. And there's people of all ages. There's cancer survivors out there riding with us. There's guys and, oh, cool. and women who are 70, 80 years old out there riding around with us, kite surfing. And a lot of them wow. have kind of, even at 60 years old, 70 years old, gotten into it and then figured out a way to make their life work cool around kite that? surfing. So, How cool is yeah, that? Yeah, that was a pretty amazing event. Never too late. Yeah, never too late. And it just seems like, yeah, it's kind of one of those things you find your passion and a lot of these people just uh, drop everything and go for it. And obviously that's not possible for everyone, but if there's an opportunity and you're, you want to do it, there's definitely, it seems like there's definitely a lot of ways you can make that happen these days. Well, do you think, um, I always ask this question at the end of the podcast, but do you think you've designed your life? Yeah, that's what I was just um, thinking. I was, I was about to drop that line in that last little... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have designed their life around this and I I think I have as well for sure it's um, been a process over the last 10-15 years since I started kind of figuring it out and always for the most part doing what I want to do and making the choices that I want to make and definitely some of it's come to me easier than other things there's been parts of it that I've had to work at hard and parts of it that have come to me through I don't know good luck or good good riding and hard work and that kind of stuff but um I've definitely kind of created the life that I want to be living which is I guess yeah I've designed my life the way I want it to be there's there's parts bits and pieces that I would change or would like to do differently but you can't have it all all that way otherwise it would be I don't know, mm-hmm. too good or too too easy or it wouldn't can't 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 all be yeah you perfect. don't want it too good <laughs> but no, yeah I've no, definitely spent the last ten years kind of figuring it all out and making it work and kind of got to a place where I feel like I have now I can say I've made a career out of it and kind of got to a place where a lot of people get at the age of twenty seven where they're yeah, saving some money and kind of living a yeah. normal life. And I've done that through kite surfing, which is, yeah, pretty nice. Yeah. That's incredible, you and I mean, you've, you've done so, so well. Um, and it looks like you just haven't taken it easy the whole time. And you just, you're just like an incredible athlete. I definitely um, take it easy I think sometimes. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <do> yeah. You? <laughs> Well, you gotta, you gotta have balance. Yeah. Actually, what do you do in your downtime? Do you have any downtime? Uh, yeah, I've, I've downtime. I mean, it's funny. I'm, I mean, kite surfing definitely takes it out of me a lot of the time. Um, a lot of the time, say I wake up and if I have a morning kiteboarding session, a lot of the rest of the day is just like thinking about eating food and resting and getting ready for the next one, <laughs> and it. I do like, I know, um, write articles or keep up with sponsors, plan things. Like a lot of my time at the moment is planning, planning travel, planning trips, planning 
COVID tests, planning where I can go, where I can <laughs> not go, and sorting out my passports and visas and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then mm. I'm now doing a little bit more with Nash with the R and D work with the gear and. But I have I have downtime and I I kind of feel bad about doing nothing sometimes. But I also just need to to be able to go out and ride and take it seriously when I'm on the water. I need to kind of be rested. Otherwise, you just burn out too quickly. Um, so I do have a bit of time where I can. I mean, I don't watch a lot of TV or any of that stuff, but I have definitely got time where I can um, do nothing and I kind of I don't know hard to explain but I feel like I need that time as, as well to kind of be able to keep yeah, doing yeah. well that's a good good point that um, I find myself during lockdown more frequently just sitting on my deck looking out at uh, at trees and stuff <laughs> and then I go hang on a minute what am I doing here? I'm I'm not doing anything. I need to be get back and do some design or you know do be busy doing something. Yeah. But there's something that I don't know in our in our busy worlds we seem to have got like obsessed with being busy. Yeah. And and then also just feeling like guilty when we're not busy, and it's actually your body needs to recover, doesn't it? As you say, something especially something as physical as what you're doing. Um, but equally, anyone doing any kind of work or any kind of focus needs time to recoup to uh um you know to your body to repair and to recover yeah so chilling is actually is a good thing yeah i can <laughs> can attest to that <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I mean it's cool um how do people get hold of you by the way like um like if people want to follow you on instagram or your website etc yeah what's i mean your, i'm pretty um, active on instagram. instagram it's just my name you and jaspin um, Facebook, mm -hmm. bit of YouTube, um, and then, I mean, if you just follow, if anyone does follow kite surfing, you follow the world tour. The one I'm doing at the moment is called the GKA, the Global Kite Sports Association. And mm -hmm. then a lot of stuff I have is through Nash Nash Kiteboarding, which is N A I S H Kiteboarding. Um, so a lot of my stuff's on their channels and. All that because they obviously I'm I'm a marketing tool for them, and yeah. yeah. But mostly I I mean the way most people follow me I guess is through Instagram, my personal feed, and um, okay. not got a million followers or anything, but I keep it uh, pretty active. Mostly kiteboarding content, but occasionally a bit about my life in general as well. Okay, cool. Anyone who's interested in sponsoring or helping you out yeah <laughs> should get in touch with you yeah um i'll carry your bags um but uh, anyways uh you and it's been really really cool thank you so much for catching up today and i wish you all the best for the for the rest of the year uh with your tours and your competition yeah thanks a lot vince great to catch up as well and yeah hopefully we can have a chat outside the podcast sometime as well yeah that'd be lovely thanks for listening in to this episode of design your life Tied for Change with world champion kiteboarder Ewan Jaspin. Tune in next episode where I'll be catching up with internationally renowned shark expert and marine biologist Melissa Christina Marquez. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. 
If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.